Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. La Malinche was discarded by her family and sold into slavery, but by a series of curious circumstances, she became one of the most famous or infamous characters in the story of the Spanish takeover of Mexico. The end. Let's talk about La Malinche. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1519, it had been two years since his writing had set off the Protestant Reformation, but Martin Luther had yet to be excommunicated from the Catholic Church, and it would take another two years for that to happen. King Charles I of Spain, grandson of former subject Queen Isabella, added Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, to his titles. Mariner Ferdinand Magellan set off to find the best route for spice trade. His expedition would be the first to circumnavigate the globe, although Magellan himself was killed before completing the voyage. Future King Henry II of France and his wife, future Queen Catherine de Medici, were both born. Leonardo da Vinci and Lucretia Borgia both died. And in 1519, a young indigenous woman was given to the party of a Spanish conquistador and then she was given a chance to change her life. A young girl named Malinali, or a name no one made note of, was born sometime around the year 1500 in one or another of the Altapitals, or quasi-independent city-states, of central Mexico. Four or five municipalities are by tradition claimants to the honor of being her birthplace. Her father was either a regional chieftain called a cacique or a nobleman of a smaller state who paid tribute to such a ruler. Her mother, we know, Mama, was named Chimatl and emerges later in our story with the Spanish-given name of Marta. What a lot of nebulous facts, Becky Graham. That's not what we expect from you. <laughs> That's right. I want a like, specific date and a specific time, specific city. Yes, I know, I know. In fact, we are going to have to begin by referring to our subject as Malinsine, a name she was not even given until much later in her life because we do not know her real name, not just us, like nobody knows her real birth name. I'm not sure that any other subject has required us to just provide the outline. I am thinking of Agrippina, the younger. Mm-hmm. We, we had to make the silhouette by coloring in the outside, but unlike Agrippina, Malintzin's name and persona have vastly outgrown the actual person and have transformed over and over through the course of centuries. So that's a challenge. So, of course, we are going to begin with her real life. Okay, so here's the thing is she doesn't, I don't know if any of this is true. That's the part that I'm having a big problem with because there were so many unreliable narrators. Even primary sources, the people that were there, were unreliable when you figure out their motives. It is a challenge. It really is. And as you go through, even during her life, you read the perspective of the Spanish, Mm -hmm. who don't understand the role of women in society, really. Um, They don't understand that everyone is not one people that they encounter. Right. It's just some fundamental things that they just don't understand. But what they also do understand is that they need to make themselves out to be the good guys. So when they're reporting all this stuff, they come out, you know, as the hero. These good things happened. So you can't really rely on that. 
So we are going to be muddling through. Imagine <laughs> us walking through like a swamp with really tall grass. I know. And we are pushing grasses aside, peering into the sides as we go along the story. So this tale is fraught with questions. And I will tell you that in almost every source you encounter, different people will choose different parts of the story as the story and we'll mm-hmm. discount whatever anybody else says. And that's just, we're just going to report what people have reported in order to perhaps complete the picture. Right. So basically, this is the most likely this happened episode. <laughs> so with that, I hate to say it's a disclaimer, but it's kind of a disclaimer. Said, let's look at her life. Modern day Southern Mexico was, at the time our story opens, the home of the Aztec Empire, a group called the Mexica. M-E-X-I-C-A, had been migrating invaders from the north, from the mysterious place we now know as Arizona and New Mexico, for hundreds of years, exerting their power and dominion, marrying the locals over the centuries. All of this crystallized into an empire about 75 years before Malintzin was born with the Treaty of 1427. Based in Tenochtitlan, the empire and conquest began to ramp up and they began to swallow up neighbors and add them to their pile. Coatzacoalcos, the city-state in which Malintzin was born, was just outside the southern border of the empire. Imagine the pressure of such a powerful and proven aggressive neighbor. I mean, walking distance to your north. Because of the close proximity of this giant, growing, powerful empire, and where Malintzin was born, being so close, they actually spoke the language of the Mexica, even though they were not Mexica. So that's the tribe that she's born into. Malintzin was most likely the only child of her father, who was a presumably a very powerful man, but he passed away. When her father died and her mother had a son with another man, To protect that child's inheritance, Malintzin needed to be out of the picture. So her mother had her kidnapped, sent off, sold. Doesn't matter how it happened. Her mother was involved in selling off Malintzin as a slave and leaving the village entirely. She was under the age of 10. And that story is one that Malintzin told herself to a Spanish chronicler many, many years later. She actually included the epilogue that in order to cover Malintzin's absence, a likely aged servant girl had been murdered and publicly buried with great grief and wailing in the family's grounds to cover the fact that Malintzin had disappeared. And thus, um, no gray areas for the inheritance of Papa's goods. Another story, and maybe even a more prosaic story, is that the household either needed the money, or the uncle himself just wanted her out of the house, or was punishing Malinche's mother for something. It's not an uncommon situation, actually, but it was very shameful to have been sold by your own family instead of being kind of a tribute or a spoil of war, like it added another layer and of course, Malintzin wanted to tell a much more palatable story later when she had obtained, you know, fame and respectability. We don't know how much of that story is true. 
Little has been documented of Melancene's early childhood. One would think that Melancene would have been raised to take her place among those of her own social class. Aztec daughters of noblemen were sent to an elite school called the Kalmakak, where they learned things like dancing, singing, also agriculture, mathematics, religion, public speaking, and history. Um, left to women in these cultures was most of the private practice of religion and most of the, the keepers of the people's story. That was a very important responsibility. And so girls were taught that early. But was this privilege extended to Melancene? Geographically so close, but they were not of the same culture which as you will see later, the Spanish didn't fully understand that they were not coming into homogenous culture, which they didn't fully understand. So what we do know is she was sold to, quote, the men from Sicalango, who were merchants who carried her away from her home in order to sell her into slavery. The traders transported her to their town about 150 miles away and there sold her on to some Mayans who lived 50 miles further down the coast. A town that was very carefully politically neutral, a town of wealthy merchants and their households and estates under the protection of the Lord of Tabasco, which I loved. But that is a place where cultures come together, like more than almost any place we've ever, ever covered. Everyone from everywhere came there in the knowledge that that was neutral ground to train. Mm -hmm. So as an enslaved girl, what was her life like? Obviously, we have no idea. We don't even know what her real name was. What she did could have been anything. It could have been caring for young children in a house. It could have been working in the fields. The Mayans had very sophisticated farming systems that they had been building up for literally centuries. So she could have been working in those fields, raising corn and beans, tomatoes, and and everything. In addition to the farm work, the Mayan had a great tradition of textiles. All the processes from spinning to weaving could have been part of her responsibility. I will tell you that it is nearly 100% likely that as she grew up, um, many exclaimed about her height and her beauty. She was forced into what we are going to call on this podcast bedroom servitude, which is as close as we're getting in a PG podcast. It would beggar belief for us to pretend that that wasn't what was going on. I mean, do you agree? No, absolutely. Unfortunately, absolutely. I would love to imagine her out in a field, but I don't think that that was entirely her life. What we do know is that she was able to pick up a second language. She had been raised, like we said, using the language of the Aztecs, the Mexica people. It was called, the language was called Nahuatl. But at this point, she is also picking up the Mayan language. So she is bilingual at this point. And probably, to some degree, trilingual. The way that my husband and son are from having worked in a kitchen with people from other cultures. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you just pick up the curse words in that case. Oh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Who's to say? But but you get little snippets of other languages, too. But she had two fully formed, fully fluent languages at this point. And there were so many different people, this melting pot city, that she's picking up different dialects, too. So there's two main languages, but within those languages, like you said, it's another language, a dialect. So if we could, for a moment, leave Melancine here in the estate of her owner for somewhere between six and ten years to grow up in this multicultural town and a multilingual household, I would like to give you a tiny background on 
the next major character to enter her story. Hernan Cortes de Monroy y Pizarro Altamirano was about 15 years older than Melitzine, and at the age of 18, having sort of, I don't know if he flunked out or just punked out of his legal studies, he has been described as both ruthless and reckless. He set off following, you know, the influencers of his day, the explorers, to the new world and wanted to make a name for himself. Off he went to the island of Hispaniola, now, of course, the island that houses Haiti and the Dominican Republic, and he fit right in. The Spanish were ruthless in their treatment of the native Taino peoples, and it was all about the the greedy gathering and exploitation of the resources of gold and sugar. After several years, at about the age of 26, Cortez is involved in the takeover of what we consider modern-day Cuba. And the Spanish set up a colony there, they name a governor, and Cortez begins to work under him. Various positions like a notary and uh, a clerk to the treasurer, you know, responsible for sending, it's called the royal fifth, a fifth of anything that they acquire, any gold, any silver, any valuables, a fifth of that has to go back to Spain. And his position was responsible for doing that. So it's kind of businessy jobs at this point. But he's looking at the sea and he's looking at these ships that are going off farther and on these explorations. And of course, we can't forget that there was a religious aspect of this. They said that they are going to spread Christianity across the world. So I don't want to say that they weren't motivated by that because that's not fair. That was a part of their missions, but it was not the only part, of course. So... A dalliance with the governor's sister-in-law and some years of like two alphas scrapping (laughs) uh, led to some serious tension. And two expeditions had been sent over to modern-day Mexico. They'd already been launched. Explorations into the mainland had proved promising in reference to, of course, gold and, and maybe even silver, but land and power. And the governor took this opportunity to send Cortez away. But I will tell you, the governor made him marry the sister-in-law. Catalina was her name. So there might have been some extracurricular activities with a highborn woman. So that's, you know, the male relatives wanted some respectability. So Cortez hurried to put together an expedition and word came to him that the governor had changed his mind. And Cortez pretended not to get the message. Cortez, in a very short period of time, had been able to amass six ships and hundreds of men as conquistadors. Now, these are not military positions. These are you know, tradesmen and just people who want to claim their own piece of wherever they're going to. So it's not a military job, but it's got some military aspects of it, as in swords and armor, and cannons, and horses, and military crossbows. So Cortes was able to put together this flotilla fairly quickly. And Cortes, at this point, has gotten word that the governor is going to try and stop him. So he's going off with his fingers in his ears, going, la, 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 la. He's not listening. The route that he's going to from Cuba to the eastern shores of what we know as Mexico, he stops along the way. He picks up even more men and more supplies. Because he had to peace out before he was fully loaded. 
<laughs> in order to maintain the pretense that he, oh, I didn't get your message. Right. <laughs> I guess that email got lost. Right. Um, so he actually did have to top himself up before they left uh, in a place where the message couldn't reach him for real. Right. Along the coast of Mexico, tales of disturbing encounters with these new strangers had been flying up and down for a decade or so. Disturbing episodes of kidnapping of village boys or the new arrivals clothes made of metal that made them immune to arrows of the cannons that the locals didn't even have a name for. The men who came, they said, from a great king far across the ocean. So when Cortez and his men came to town, the local men were ready for them. And a giant force of native men stood off against the Spanish. But they were outmatched. They were outmatched by the armor, by the metal weapons, and finally gobsmacked by the appearance of warriors on horses. Horses were not indigenous to Mexico. This was a brand new animal for them. And they look sort of like a deer, but they are much larger and much stronger. And look at how fast they can go. Well, yeah, that was a tactical advantage and demoralizing, scary novelty. Wild West people, take note. All of those horses in your favorite Westerns came from this. There had been horses in America 10,000 years before this in the fossil record, but not live horses until the Spanish brought them. So this and following encounters with the Spanish, the horses actually spread faster than the Spanish did. And people loved them a lot more. I can tell you that right now. The great city of Pontinchon, to save themselves, had to offer tribute to their conquerors. As part of the deal, they presented 20 slave women to the Spanish, one of which was Melancine. The first thing Cortez does with his gift of these 20 women is to have them baptized. One of their missions was to spread Christianity. These women don't speak Spanish. They have no idea what's happening to them while these men are baptizing them. But they are all given Christian names, and Malinson becomes Marina. And remember, she had a whole other real name that we just do not know. So she had a name. Like she was Anna or she was whatever. And then instantly, now she has a whole new identity as Marina. And as we'll call her that, for a while, Marina followed her new owner into an unknown fate. Now, she had been given to the highest ranking man among Cortez's men, um, an actual Spanish nobleman, Hernando Alonso Puertacaro, cousin of a Spanish count. He was like nobility adjacent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, trying to investigate why that happened, she was possibly the most beautiful of the captives. She held herself with great dignity. Um, she was later described as having been mistress of vassals, which I don't, I think it was just the carriage of, of her, her, her dignity. Anyway, regardless, appearance or behavior, she was deemed the most valuable gift. And so she was given to the highest ranking man. Not awesome. No. It's also possible, but not probable, that her highborn birth status had been communicated to the Spanish, like you might pass on an antique with provenance. I, I don't know. Yeah, we don't know. But there's so many different things. I mean, all throughout the story, there's so many different avenues that the truth could have actually fallen down. It could have just been, like you said, she just carried herself like a noble woman would. So they just assumed that she was of nobility. 
Not long afterward, after a westward sea journey of some distance, the Spanish were approached by messengers from the ruler of the Aztecs, Moctezuma II. So Cortes summoned his usual interpreter, a Spaniard. This man's name is Geronimo de Aguilar, and he had been shipwrecked off the coast of Mexico. He was imprisoned by the Mayans and released and was living among them. But he also was fluent in their language as well as Spanish. So he was a huge asset that Cortez had no idea that he was going to be getting when he arrived in Mexico. This man just came out in a boat and he said, hello, I speak your language. So Cortez expectantly turns to Aguilar. What are these men saying? Oh, no one can understand each other. Ruh-roh, they'd crossed some kind of linguistic line, and now what? They were in a pickle. And I 100% wish I knew how to say they were in a pickle in Spanish. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) They were in a cornichon, but not in France. Um, So there are a couple of stories about the discovery of Marina's abilities. One story is that Aguilar himself had heard Marina talking to some local ladies in a language he didn't recognize a few days ago. And so now he sent for her to see if maybe, maybe that by chance was the same language and she could make heads or tails of this combo. Or while everyone was talking at each other, babbling right and left, blah, 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 trying to use sign language and interpretive dance to get their points across. The newcomers said something and Marina pointed to Cortez. There was a record scratch. All the newcomers' heads turned to Cortez and they bowed to him. Upon which, all the Spanish turned to Marina. And now here's the situation. Cortez would speak Spanish, then Aguilar would translate to Mayan, and then Marina would translate the Mayan to the Aztec language. Nahuatl, which, of course, she had learned as a child living in close proximity to the borders of the empire. It is so reminiscent, West Wing fans. Do you remember an episode where they had to get a Portuguese interpreter to talk to the dishwasher in the basement of the White House who could translate into Batak for the Indonesian dignitary? (laughs) And it was like very slow. And every time they said no, it was like, no, 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 no. Okay, that one we've got. We don't need to translate that. It actually just reminded me, because I am not a West Wing person, of the game of telephone. Oh, yeah. And there were so many opportunities for the original message to get mixed up on its way from one leader to another. I have to tell you, there was a John Wayne movie where like, he comes up to the bar and he goes, give me a shot of rot gut or whatever. And the French subtitles say, un dibonnet, s'il vous plaît. <laughs> like that is yeah, like not that, what John Wayne said. <laughs> right. Think how much power interpreters have. I mean, even now. Oh, right. And that's the power that Marina has. So Cortez took her aside and promised her her freedom and more. He said, what more? Gold? Don't know. That was his usual MO. If she would help him. He planned to push through to negotiate with the great leader Moctezuma himself. And he needed her language skills both along the way and at the royal court. That's a big deal. So. What he was asking, I mean, honestly, he wouldn't have put it this way, but he was asking her if he could put his whole expedition in her hands, really. This moment is pointed to as, quote, Marina betraying her own people in order to help the Spanish take over Mexico. And I just want to make clear, number one, the Aztecs were not her people. In fact, you know, she lived in fear of them her whole childhood. Number two, the people she'd just left weren't her people. They had enslaved her and given her to the Spanish. And number three, her people, her actual people, 
family people had sold her into slavery instead of protecting her. So where exactly was her loyalty supposed to have come from? And then where is it supposed to lay now? So this moment pointed to as the turning point of her, you know, maybe later becoming a traitor, like examine that behavior because I don't think she's betraying anyone right now. She's looking out for herself. It seems like an easy choice. Please the most powerful man in your orbit with your brain power and be trusted with respect or stay with the random dude you were given to as some kind of prize. It's no contest. Marina agreed to the responsibility and almost instantly her status seemed to change. And now the Spanish tended to refer to her as Doña Marina Lady Marina. It was a it was a, a term of respect. Isn't that interesting? In just a, a couple conversations, she's gotten this honorific in the front of her name, elevated herself, given herself agency with just a couple conversations. About this point, speaking of giving yourself agency, Cortez decides that he needs kind of a promotion. So he decides to establish a city that he is going to run. He is now going to be the governor of the city of Veracruz. You're going to read that Cortez burned his ship so nobody could sail off and leave him. But the truth is he grounded his ship so he could use the timber and strip other things off the ships to build in his new city of Veracruz. So now he is not a captain sent by the governor of Cuba. Now he is a governor in his own right of this city that he has established, which elevates him, at least in his own mind, because nobody outside of this group knows it. This is where his abbreviated stay at law school comes into play several times because he is the master of the loophole. Like, you can't just go there and subjugate another king's people. However, if they ask you to become the governor, what mm-hmm. are you going to do? Then, right. then just tell us that they asked you and we'll go ahead and stamp that. And so he built this city and then told his men, okay, now ask me. Yeah, let's... let's yeah. Ch- you know, yep. so it's a, it's a little bit of subterfuge, but, you know, he's handling his business. So Cortez, through his interpreters, asked Moctezuma for a meeting and increasingly valuable gifts started coming. Here are some gifts to present to your king, new guy, but sorry, no chance of a meeting. Surely you're going to go home soon. Give these to your king. Hint, hint, messengers out. Moctezuma was not about it. Is that how it is? Well. Some other locals stopped by to see what was going on, the hustle, the bustle, the sounds of building, speaking yet another language no one knew, but they had their own Nahuatl interpreters, and through them and Marina were going back the other direction now, Cortez was told Moctezuma had plenty of enemies, and tensions were really very high. This was not a unified people that he had just dumped himself among, and there could be, there could be some deals to be struck. As anybody who has watched any seasons of Survivor knows, the first thing that you do is make alliances. And Cortez is about to do just that. This episode of The History Chicks is sponsored by BetterHelp. Beckett, we changed our Christmas policy. Last year, I overdid it. My kids even said... Mom, it's too much. You gave us too much. It was too much. So this year, we intentionally cut back. Did you ever change your policies on Christmas? We have gotten to the point, funny, you should ask that, where Chris Graham and I have decided that we are going to fill our own stocking. (laughs) Oh, that is actually great. What made you guys decide to do that? 
Because it's kind of more in the spirit of treat yourself rather than try to find funny things that happen to fit in the stocking for another person that are going to end up in a box in the closet. Well, that's kind of like giving yourself boundaries, right? Like, this is the way it should be. That's a boundary. People talk about that in therapy all the time. I know my therapist did. She was big on me setting boundaries because apparently I didn't have very many of them. And that's the therapist that I found through BetterHelp. If you happen to be thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's completely online and they have designed it to be extremely convenient for you and it'll work with your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. In the season of giving, give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash chicks today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash chicks. So here we are in modern day Mexico. We are on land. We have our home base. Cortez cemented his alliance with these new people, the Totonacs, and the local Totonacs gave some noblewomen of their own in marriage to the Spaniards. So this is the difference between what had happened to Doña Marina, as we are calling her now, and what happened to these women is still no element of choice still horrible that you were just given to some random, but there was the protection of uh, legal marriage and expectations were vastly different with these women. However, it was a very common thing to cement an alliance. Even, I mean, even Henry VIII, you know, cemented the Spanish alliance by marrying, you know, at least at the beginning, a Spanish princess. So it's not uncommon in the world of royalty and the game of chess. There you go. But that had just happened. Also, Cortes decided to send someone back to Spain with letters and documentation about the new settlement, about the plea of the people that he become governor, about what actually was going on here. And he decided it had better be the highest ranking guy, convenient, uh, Marina's mm-hmm. ex-owner. I'm sorry to say that one of the Totonac's noblewomen had replaced Marina in that man's household, and she was even now on her way back to Spain with him. Talk about someone that went through a big change very quickly. No kidding. Doña Marina was also going through kind of a big change because she is clearly really good at picking up languages, and she's starting to learn Spanish. And in just a few months, our friend Geronimo Aguilar is not going to be necessary anymore because she is going to be able to translate right from whatever language the tribal leaders are speaking into Spanish. So cutting out another middleman. If you read anything about Cortez's conquest of Mexico, from this point on, just know that she is with him. So anything that you're reading that he does, she is there because she needs to speak for him. The locals' perception of Doña Marina led to another name change. Anyone approaching the camp with goods or news were directed to Doña Marina for conversation, for their payment, for information. Societally, those that spoke to outsiders were people of power. That's how they interpreted it as they came along. 
these new Spaniards showed this obviously native woman a considerable amount of respect. And these facts led to her being treated with deference to a name change that went like this. First of all, the languages of the Aztec Empire couldn't really manage an R sound at all. So her name, even to herself, was said as Melina. And as her position seemed to be one of power, they added something just as the Spanish did with Doña Marina or how one might in Japan add the suffix san. As a note of respect, they added the ending tzin, T-Z-I-N, which the Spanish again made easier for themselves and transmogrified to Malinche. Sometimes they called her Malinche la lingua, which meant the tongue one who spoke, and the native people called her Malintzin Tenapal, the voice. So what are we calling her? I guess we're back to Malintzin. Okay, I liked Malintzin. I liked Malina, too. I thought that was really pretty. Malintzin it is. Malintzin's words were absolutely key to his expansion and his ability to attract allies from among the peoples his group passed through. She also had a curious ability to kind of change, um, almost like change personas. She understood the audience to whom she was speaking and what methodology would get across to them. So I don't mean to trivialize this, but with the Spanish, she was almost more flirtatious. She played down her brain power, perhaps. Oh, of course you would know because you're a blah, 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 and they, they beg your this and that. It was almost like playful, like non-threatening. But with others, the peoples she passed through, she knew that haughty words of power using a formal dialect indicating royalty or nobility would get her point across more effectively to the people she passed through. If she flirted with those men, they would think, why is a servant girl trying to talk to me? And, you know, what she's trying to convey to all of these tribal leaders is look, these people have weapons you all have never seen. Yeah, you might have more people, but you're not going to overcome them with any of your power. Just do what they say now because you're going to be decimated otherwise, which to me sounds like she's trying to help them, not turn against them, not be a traitor. She also, as they traveled, translated the word of the Christian God and the Christian religion as they traveled. The Spanish did use that as great justification to write home about their actions, but just the the tales of war are as brutal as you can imagine. You know, whole villages burnt because the man didn't listen at the beginning. You know, oh, you're not going to listen again? I'll go burn another village. I, I just don't know. The juxtaposition of those two things doesn't sit right with me. I mean, you've read about European wars. They're no better. But the sheer magnitude and callousness of this campaign, once it got out, shocked those at home. And it should be noted that the Aztecs were bloodthirsty themselves. I can't get too graphic here, but it involves large-scale human sacrifice. And we'll we'll give you a link, you know, and it, as usual, it's the common people who suffer from war, regardless of who the combatants are, I think. Right. So here I am, like, pontificating against war. Like, nobody's really for it, except for maybe Cortez. But yeah, but Malintzin was responsible for recruiting allies all the way along, uh, reinforcements along the way. Cortez would never have made it on his own. No one would have thought to 
join up with him, I don't think, uh, especially when it was only interpretive dance. Right. Interpretive dance. Well, I mean, like, I know that's what it would have been because he has this whole thing that he says every time he enters another village that she has to translate. It's a religious thing. I'm here for the church and for king and just lay down your weapons to me. This is me being, you know, really paraphrasing, but she has taken over saying that to all the tribal leaders. But remember, the women were involved in the religion in this, in these cultures. So coming from a woman, Talking about a faith, it might not have been as weird, I think. I mean, they're really bringing it, but they're bringing it by hook or by crook, which seems not real. Like, if Mm -mm. you really want people to convert, you shouldn't be, like, putting hot irons on their feet to make it happen. No, no. I could be wrong. No, I, I went to a church once, and on the altar it said, loving people to Christ. And that's not what they're doing. On the way to Moctezuma's capital... The Aztec king was getting increasingly freaked out at the prospect of Cortez making it that far. So instead of sending gifts, he is getting his allies into position to stop this expedition towards his city of Tenochtitlan. So Cortez and his new allies, the Deluxecalas, which Malincine had negotiated almost 5,000 warriors to travel with them. They warned against traveling through the city-state of Cholula. Hey, Cholula used to be our allies, said the Deluxecalas. And they ditched us to obtain that superior ally of Moctezuma. So if I were you, I mean, engaging Cholula means you're engaging Moctezuma just from me to you. Well, I don't know what wisdom this showed, but Cortez decided to push ahead. You know, I'm curious about what's going to happen, I guess. Let's let's see. This is our first endeavor against the man himself. Let's go ahead and go. Well, the Cholulans welcome in the Spanish, but here's something. Your Black's Colin friends have to stay outside. We used to be friends with them and we don't trust them because we betrayed them. And we might be doing it again right now. Mm. Yeah. The reception got colder and weirder. I mean, it was just like the energy was not good. No. According to the story, at one point, she's talking to everybody, including the women, because she's one of them and she's befriending them. A older woman came to her and said, look, you do not want to head out with those foreign guys because Montezuma has planned an attack outside these city walls. Why don't you just stay here and marry my son, keep yourself safe, and all your men in their funny clothes are going to die when they walk outside of the city. So Melinson says, well, let me bring you back to talk to my guy, Cortez. And in discussing things with this woman through Melinson, Cortez has enough reason to believe that this is true. The woman said that the Cholulans were sending the women, children, and valuable items out of town right past the contingent of Moctezuma's men who were waiting just outside of town in some ravines to ambush the Spanish. I have to say, this is the second point at which the possible traitorous nature of Malitzin to her people, I mean, people point to this moment, you know, her, her spying, her choosing the Spanish over her people. Again, I say, This part seems too good to be true. After only a few days, we're going to trust a random lady that she's going to take care of me and let me marry her son. Also, what security did Malintzin have about this person's goodwill? 
given that Malintzin was sort of famous by now as the mouthpiece of the Spaniards. Again, these are not her people, and I don't think she would survive five minutes. Like, the Spanish left, and whatever happens to the Spanish, she's alone as their mouthpiece in a strange... I don't. I just don't think she would be alive. I think it was just um, a no-choice situation. Right. So if you if you have to betray this old lady, that's what you do. I mean, and she just made a poor choice in telling you. <laughs> that is all. Right, <laughs> right, right. Later, Cortez did give, and this is kind of rare for him, uh, Malintin the credit for discovering how things stood around Cholula. But it could be simply that common sense led Cortez to look around and improperly identify the energy in town, you know, and mm-hmm. the absence of women and children. So... Cortez and the Deluxe Callas gathered all the nobles into a courtyard and gave a famous speech, which, of course, Malintzin delivered. The crux of which was, how anxious you are to see us among the ravines so that you can gorge yourselves on our flesh, but my God will prevent it. Why have you turned traitor and decided you will kill us when we've done you no harm, but have only warned you against wickedness, against human sacrifice, and the worship of idols? We know of your plan, to which the nobles are like, uh-oh. And then they're like, we're only following our King Moctezuma's orders. We're only following orders. This wasn't our choice. Don't be mad, <laughs> you know? And Cortez says, well, the King of Spain's orders are that I must punish acts of treachery against him. And he gave a signal. And Cortez and the Dlux Calas laid waste to the town of Cholula, sort of preemptively. They caught everyone unaware. The the nobles in the courtyard inevitably were were gone. The Spanish killed everyone in that town square. Their allies rushed in from outside and rampaged through the streets. Within hours, thousands of Cholulans were dead. Those who came back from the safety of hiding were given to the Dlaxcalans, their enemy, as sacrifices and as slaves. The town was looted for goods and supplies. Where does Malintzin's, like stand? Where physically? Where is she? Where is she right now? Oh, <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Like, I yeah. mean, not, not where does she stand philosophically? Because we just covered that. But like, where is her body right now when all this right. is going on? I just don't understand. They were in the city for a while. He would have seen a place where he could put soldiers with her to keep her safe. And I believe that that's what he did. I got it. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, he does it again and again. I mean, she gets through these situations unscathed when people are dying all around her. So I think he's just going way out of his way to keep her safe. So, um, as a corollary to the story of Malintzin being a spy, historians now think that it might have been a pre negotiated attack, part of the deal. To get the Deluxe Collins to come with them was the laying waste of their ally that had turned on them. Like, okay, if we attack here and win, then you're, you've proven to us that you're worthy of, you know, allying ourselves with, and then we'll join you from there. So that may have been um, in no way a surprise to anyone on the Spanish team. And it might have given Cortez a reason, you know, in the letters he's sending back to Spain to say, you know, oh, she's told us about this plot. Right. You know, yeah. So the Cholulans had blamed Moctezuma for the planned attack on the Spanish. And okay, said Cortez in a message to him, I'll be showing up on your doorstep now. We're going to talk about this. (laughs) (laughs) That's not good. No, no. I just want to point out a timeline here. Cortez arrived in Mexico in February of 1519. 
Now we're in November. In the short period of time, he's gotten Melinson to help him do an awful lot. It's just amazing to me that he was able to amass all of these allies so quick. And I think that the credit is due to her. She's not just translating word for word. She's adding context. She's telling Cortez, you know, about customs of villages and things that people do and why the leader might be saying this and what he really means. It's not just he said this. She said that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So she was giving she was acting as an advisor as well as a translator. Correct. I do want to put this disclaimer out, though. We are not lauding Cortez in any way. If you read any like historians rankings of the most vicious brutal conquistadors, or in fact, generals at all. He rises to the top, or some may say the bottom. Um, he's the worst one. Right. He he had a ruthless streak as a young man that has only been amplified by the power he can now wield. So that said, we're not rooting for him, certainly, to win. Um, Malincine has certainly hitched her wagon to a dark star, but I don't know that she had another choice, you know. I just don't want you guys to think that we're like, yay, Cortez, go, go, right. Cortez, you know. Right. No, no, not even close. That was one of the things I had the hardest time with. Yeah. You know, it's like, I want to look at the story through her eyes and, you know, the victories were kind of, you know, to get her to the next point in her story and to survive. But to do that, it's, you said it, nailed it. Dark Star. Yeah. Yeah. On November 19th, the two forces, Moctezuma's and Cortez's met at the gates of the capital city of Tenochtitlan, and by hundreds of men who welcomed them formally, the Spanish, and ushered them into one of the most beautiful places the Spaniards had ever seen. Tenochtitlan was the capital where King Montezuma II has set up residency. The city is beautiful. It's very new. It's glittering. It's full of 100,000, by some estimates, people, which is larger than any other city in Europe at this point. It's huge, it's beautiful, and it's safe because the city is built in the middle of a very large lake. And all around is canals and lake and water. So defending the city is fairly simple because you can see people coming. There's no ambushing here. And if you find yourself in difficulties, you simply take down bridges. Right. I say simply, but you know. (laughs) (laughs) The Spanish marveled at the canals filled with fresh, drinkable water, the sewer system that would take away the excrements and other things to be used as fertilizer outside the town, the scent of the flowers cascading down off the roof gardens, tens of thousands of people shopping in a marketplace brimming with delectable goods of all kinds. The story goes that Moctezuma or Montezuma II, same guy, asked for Malincine's advice on how to deal with Cortez. And she is reported to have told him, you cannot win. You cannot win. You may win in the short term. You may defeat these men, but there are more coming. There are infinite more coming. And you would be best off if you dealt with them as an ally and friend. And Montezuma knew that. He had had people watching all of these different Spanish ships that had been coming for years now. So he knows what's coming. He knows that they can send more. They've been coming more. He's got a lot of intel, not just on Cortez, but on where they're coming from, the king that's sending them. So he has every reason to believe her. 
Cortez wrote later that within a week, he had Moctezuma as his prisoner. However, is he really a prisoner? It seems to be status quo around there. Right. Well, it depends what you're reading, right? Because Cortez is writing a letter back to Spain saying, my king, these people have put down their weapons and have vowed loyalty to you, like right on the spot. He's telling him this really not true story. By saying that this is now a Spanish territory, he has given himself permission by law to protect it. So if anybody uprises, they're considered rebels, even though they're protecting their own city. As far as he is concerned on paper, he has the law on his side. That's what Spain's hearing. They're like, oh, Montezuma just sat down and said, okay, what do we do? No. So Moctezuma is now his prisoner, but a chronicler that had accompanied Cortez literally wrote, quote, Moctezuma never told his people he was a prisoner and continued to govern them as usual. So I'm not entirely sure that Moctezuma understood that Cortez thought he was a prisoner exactly. Right. So we'll see. That's a little bit of a communication problem. I read that Moctezuma and his people This first time that the Spanish occupied his city was more like Moctezuma sort of politely hosting some very rude guests that he was really trying not to offend rather than as Cortez wrote home, you know, Moctezuma rolled over and made Cortez the boss immediately. The Spanish were treated well. They were given gifts and it was a series of extraordinarily tense months. Speaking of that, all conversation went through Malintzin, of course. What an amazingly large degree of control of this whole tense situation came down to the middle of this hourglass where Malintzin stood. She had the power. Can you even imagine how much power that was? The whole situation was in the palm of her hand almost. Okay, let's take the lens. I don't know the word for this, where you take the movie lens and you pan out. Oh, yeah. The governor of Cuba, remember him? He's real mad. He had tattled to the king of Spain and complained bitterly about Cortez's disobedience. He was worried about, you know, the natives, he said, which is rich for a man that literally brutally took over the entire island of Cuba with no regard for who was living there before. But unfortunately for the governor of Cuba, Malintzin's former owner had also arrived in Spain with gold, with artifacts, and exciting tales of the marvels of the new world. And the king literally, well, he melted down most of the gold, but some of the artifacts (laughs) he put on display. And those things traveled as an exhibition all over the country. It was so amazing and cool. And it was all down to Cortez. Cortez got a little PR. But he's also gone behind the back of the guy that thinks that Cortez is reporting to him, the governor of Cuba, and gone straight to the king. The Cuban governor is not happy about that. That is the governor of Cuba's main motivation for sending a group of people to Cortez to get him under control. Yeah, he sent a Captain Narvaez to take over, and now Cortez had a real problem and a PR problem. Now he had to handle his own business and left Tenochtitlan with half his men to confront the other Spanish and took Malintzin with him. So here he is nominally occupying that town. And it was not until the second Spanish expedition landed that he literally put Moctezuma in chains. Like, oh, now you're really my prisoner. I guess I have to really show people that you're my prisoner. And it's almost like he did it 
retroactively mm-hmm. after having lived in harmony relatively this whole time. He is now officially has Montezuma as his prisoner in Montezuma's own city, and he leaves the mm-hmm. city. Mm-hmm. What's he thinking? That it's going to be just fine? It's going to be continue the same way it had been? Right. No. So when he arrives at the landing site, he immediately takes over from this new captain who, like, literally, he had just landed. He doesn't have any allies. And all the way back, Cortez and Malintzin are picking up allies. So he had reinforcements. And, and so he showed up and just took those extra Spanish people under his rule. That's like, I'm not going to have this second posse following me around. It's not right. going to happen. Thanks for these extra 800 men and 80 horses. They're going to come in handy. Bye. Well, word came, however, that the gentlemen he had left behind out there in Tenochtitlan were again in a cornichon, holed up in a fortress in the middle of, <laughs> I don't know the word, I should look it up. <laughs> like a pickle in Spanish, yeah. Um, they were holed up in a fortress, uh, like a made-up fortress in the middle of town and defending it with all their might. And Moctezuma and his people had taken this opportunity to decide they were going to end this problem. They were going to handle it. One thing the Spanish left out of this message to Cortez, though it wouldn't have mattered, was that they had actually attacked first. They went into a street festival and laid waste to everyone there that they saw. Yes, they brought this on themselves and then pretended to be surprised and retreated to a fortress. So as far as they just told him like, oh, they, they're mad and they're fighting us and we went and hid in a fortress. Like they forgot the part where they're the instigators. Right. But again, Cortez wouldn't have minded that because, you know, it doesn't matter. PR-wise, I have the right to defend this town and there's rebels and now I'm going to go back. So that's what Cortez does. He and his new group of people head back to Tenochtitlan and that's when war breaks out really within the city walls. Now, the locals have prepared the city for these battles. After about a week of fighting... Montezuma goes out either to tell his people to calm down or to give any kind of message, and he gets hit with a rock and dies. This is extraordinarily controversial. The indigenous people will tell you that Cortez had Montezuma killed. The Spanish people will tell you that Montezuma died by a rock thrown by one of his own people. The truth is somewhere in there. Doesn't matter. He dies. So they did have the next heir who who stepped up and he was not a man who was going to be full of diplomacy. He was out for vengeance and the Spanish, including Malintzin, barely made it out alive. I mean, they lost a lot of people. Um, One book I was reading in the aftermath of this war called the Spanish and I quote refugees, like they literally barely made it alive. This incident is called the Night of Sorrows because so many people died. Two-thirds of the Spanish, by some estimates, died trying to cross the waterways. Now, a lot of them are loaded down with the gold that they had been collecting. Estimated up to eight tons of gold and silver were also gone as they're trying to escape. So the Spanish are either dead or left the building, but the Spanish left behind a terrifying sleeper agent. One or more of the new Spanish arrivals had carried smallpox with him into the capital, which decimated not only the city, but then as the Spanish turned back, they realized it had already spread behind them. Some estimates are that smallpox killed 60% to 80% of the Aztecs, who had no immunity at all to it. 
As the disease and the unease spread, Malinsin gave what turned out to be correct advice, actually, that the Spanish would just keep coming in their ships and could not be stopped, which is probably not a threat if it turns out to be true. I got dinged the other day, Beckett. Uh Uh-oh, what? What happened? Well, there's a service that I subscribe to and I pay an annual fee and I forgot that I wanted to cancel it. Yeah. And it came through that I got charged for it again and I kicked myself and then I realized, oh, I bet you there's an app for that. And there is. It's called Rocket Money and it's going to help me with those subscriptions that I want to cancel that I forget about. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. So I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something that I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. That's it. Tap. Gone. Hooray! Yay! I never have to talk to anybody on the phone. (laughs) Yay, yay. And (laughs) Rocket Money will even try to get me a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money. Now, this annual one, I don't know how they're going to do that, but stay tuned because I'm going to try and find out. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over $500 million in canceled subscriptions. That's a lot. I know. I hope I can add mine to it. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash historychicks. That's rocketmoney.com slash historychicks. Rocketmoney.com slash historychicks. Because we're entering into a new phase after taking Tenochtitlan, we're going to do one more name change for our friend here. People had been calling her Malinche or La Malinche for quite some time, but now, because of what has gone down, she is very well known all across Mexico. So when she comes into the towns, people know who she is. But, kind of funny, they're also calling Hernán Cortés La Malinche. So we will call her Malinche or La Malinche from now on. How does that sound? That's, that's good. Any speculation about why they also called Cortez La Malinche? I had a thought that perhaps they were using that term, which of course is is foreign. It's not a real word, you know, as an honorific, like the Spanish kind of like when strangers go to a wedding, like they think, oh, you must be on the bride side. You must be on the groom side. Maybe the Spanish think Malinche is a native word and the natives think Malinche is a Spanish word and they just use it as an honorific. Um Possibly, unless they're using the law and they know that that's feminine. The way I, that, yes, that's probably part of it. The way I also was looking at it was it was kind of a slander to him. Like, oh, you have this woman talking for you. So I guess you're the woman. Oh, wow. You went further than I even went. I know. I know. Listen to me. (laughs) That's great. Okay. Well, the Spanish did begin to arrive in greater and greater numbers, bringing, of course, torture and trauma for the populace from the people, again, who brought you the Spanish Inquisition. Cortes became paranoid at the loss of his exclusivity and power a little bit, and he started doing what I call peeing circles around the whole area, uh, asserting his dominance, and became a little famously unhinged. Yeah, that's what's going on. He's also overseeing the rebuilding of Tenochtitlan to his specifications. 
So he's going to turn this into his city now. So the temple, that's gone. But we're going to take all the stones that the temple was made with and build a cathedral with them. Malinche began to be very responsible for the administration of um, receiving tribute, shall we say. Cortez was developing a little bit of a, like, you must give me your royal fifth-ishness, unofficially, <laughs> yeah. um, of his own before he transported the royal fifth of the actual king over to Spain. So she actually had almost complete control over those resources and their documentation. So that puts her actually even in an even more important position as they're going into these villages as the contact, the person to talk to. And she was his helpmeet in another capacity. Malinche discovered that she was pregnant with Cortez's child. And surprise, Cortez's wife, Catalina, arrived from Cuba. Yeah, wasn't that a surprise to him? So he set Catalina and her entourage up in another house. Malinche is by herself in one house, very pregnant. And Catalina and Cortez are living in this other house. Now, Catalina, remember, she's raised in nobility and she's kind of like a real housewife of Santiago. Everything has got to be to her specifications. She's extremely prejudiced against local people. Her and Cortez start fighting. Well, I have to tell you, remember, he never wanted to marry her. There was right. some sort of dalliance undocumented. And the brother-in-law demanded that Cortez marry Catalina. So they started out under non mm, lovely circumstances to begin with. Right. One night, Cortez throws a big party. And for some reason, mid-party, Catalina heads off to bed. A little while later, he follows her. And in the middle of the night, he runs out saying, quick, my wife is dead. She must have had a heart attack. Or maybe it was a respiratory ailment. Or maybe those bruises on her neck are an indication of how she died. Now, the bruises are one of those things, like some people saw them, some people didn't see them. History tends to think that he likely killed his wife. You know, that said, none of us were there, so. And it's almost right about this time that Malinche gives birth to her and Cortez's son. They name him Martin after Cortez's father. No Fitz Martins here, it's Martin Cortez. And he is publicly acknowledged as the first modern child of Mexico, having a Spanish and an indigenous parent. Um, I think you brought this up earlier. It's statistically impossible that he was the first mixed child since the Spanish have arrived. That's yeah, I said mathematically that's impossible. Symbolically, yes. Yeah. Symbolically, he's the, quote, first mestizo, the probable future of life in the new world. Malinche is now living in Coyoacan in relative stability. She has a respectable position. She is the mother of at least the prospective heir. We've talked about this before, maybe in um, when we were talking about Henry VII. Maybe this is almost a better position of power than the wife of somebody being the mother of somebody. She's a strong woman. She's politically knowledgeable. She's someone you had to deal with, that someone you should deal with. She's a personage. She's only 24. <laughs> I know. At 24, Cortez requested that she accompany him on an expedition to modern day Honduras. He had sent a party down to colonize. And I'm, at this point, I'm using the words with air quotes because 
they're not doing nice things to these indigenous people to take over their lands. He had sent down a party, but the head of it had turned on him and decided that he was going to do exactly what Cortez did and establish this area as his own. So Cortez and his men need to go down there and take care of this insurrection. And uh, people think that Malinche must have driven a bargain with Cortez in order to agree to go and leave, you know, her respectable, comfortable position where she is. Because on the way there, she was married respectably to a Spaniard, one Captain Juan Jaramillo, um, one of Cortez's OGs, really. He'd been there yeah. since the beginning. Also, she received the right to own and demand labor from the people of the very area in which she had been born. It was sort of a, a legal status called an encomienda, like you're given land and also you can demand labor from the people that live on that land. It sounds kind of like in England, an estate. You know, the people that live there and farm there, the estate owners, like at Downton Abbey, mm -hmm. um, get the profit from the work. Right. Or at least a percentage of the profit. Correct. Well, what an amazing full circle that would be. So, hooray. We go back to Honduras. It is old school. We're back to stress. We're back to fear and conflict. Oh, hooray. We're here. Cortes had with him the current emperor of the Aztecs, who obviously he could not trust. You know, same, Cortes, same. But he'd learned his lesson, at least. You know, you don't leave the emperor alone while you go handle your situation with fellow Spaniards and expect him to still be there as a prisoner when you get back. So now he's taking his prisoner with him. Malinche was pressed into service during, I'm sorry to say, the torture and questioning of this emperor and his men after a rumor of a possible escape slash rebellion had been bandied about. Cortez suspected some of his own men and the emperor of planning to betray him. So here's Malinche having to translate during a torture procedure. That's probably not the first time she had to do that, but that's the first time that got directly notated. His behavior is getting increasingly erratic and, and paranoid. So it must have been even more stressful because she's having to deal with his issues as well as this horrible thing that he's asking her to do. He had the emperor killed right there on the road, which sent horrified shock waves rippling out across the land. Malinche at the time was given the credit for saving the other men's lives in that party through diplomacy and her handling of Cortez. As far as I could tell, she didn't actually get the blame for that particular murder, which surprises me given that she got the blame for everything else later. Yeah, no kidding. Her other duties must have been hard to, um, to stomach. I'm sorry to say that Cortez was still all about the slave trade. The very frequent dispersal of women from communities along the way to the Spanish employed her interpretive skills again. How, how, how do you dissociate from having to do to other people what you had gone through? Yeah, I don't know. Okay. Well, as far as Cortez is concerned, he's assuming that other people are doing to him what he did to other people. Right. And so now in one of the most famous stories about Malinche on her way, to Honduras, they came to the borders of her new domain, her new old domain, the domain she used to live in as a small child. 
And it was here that she was reunited with her mother and her brother and forgave her mother for selling her into slavery. You know, that sounds an awful lot like a story in the Bible about a young man named Joseph. The documentarian that wrote down that story did seem to equate it with Christian forgiveness. However, I mean, it must be said, she did meet her mother and, and no one died. So there, there must have been some level of either forgiveness or live and let live, or I am too grand to worry about a little thing like yourself. I'm not exactly sure which way that might have gone. But this uncaring, generalized forgiveness seems like a lot of a stretch. Yeah. She saved the Spanish on this expedition over and over. So ultimately, for his purposes, Cortez had been right to bring Malinche along with him. What makes that even more remarkable to me as a mother of three children is during this expedition, she gave birth to her second child but from her husband, a little girl that they named Maria. So she's pregnant on this trip. She has a newborn on this trip and she's doing all this other political activity as well as dealing with Cortez and all his issues. That's remarkable to me. Right. And really not notated. Mm-mm. No. Malinche and her husband and little daughter settled near modern-day Mexico City, which was definitely experiencing some growing pains. Um, let's call it a transitional period. It was very confusing, and it was fraught with people sort of throwing elbows, you know, to make space for themselves. But honestly, more stable and serene life than she had ever had before, managing her own estate, really. At 28, Cortez disturbed her peace. Yet again, he called her for another reason. He was going to take their son, Martin, to Spain to see the Pope, like you do, and get him legitimized so that he could be Cortez's heir. Ultimately, um, Martin would go on to serve at the court of Philip II of Spain, who later, much later, married Queen Mary Tudor of England. How's that for both a moving on up and a placed in history? Mm. But unfortunately, Malinche never saw him again. A few months later, aged only about 29 years of age, Malinche succumbed to people think the smallpox that the Spanish had brought with them to the new world. When we think of what a short period of calm and normalcy in her own home it was, little Maria was under the age of three. Mm -hmm. So it was such a short period of time. It's believed that Malinche was buried at the Holy Trinity Church in modern-day Mexico City. It was later turned into a monastery, but has since been demolished. So her final resting place is a big question mark. Cortez himself, however, was buried seven separate times. Right. Nobody wanted him. <laughs> no kidding. Okay, so thus ends the actual life of Malinche. And now we enter into some nebulous fairy tale territory. Her daughter Maria ended up um, growing up in the household of her father and a noble stepmother named Beatrix, who was only about 12 years older than she. About 20 years after Malinche died, her daughter brought a lawsuit taking her stepmother to court about Malinche's home villages. The daughter said that she ought to be the one to own these. They ought to have come to her upon her father's death and not to the stepmother. 
sort of an important thing for interpretation, the stepmother summoned all of these witnesses to sort of be anti-Malinche character witnesses. Mm-hmm. And she didn't dare impugn her indigenous status because by then there was still a whole bunch of indigenous power players in the area. But what she did do is complain that she was low status, that she should have been happy to have a husband at all, given her low birth. Frankly, you know, she didn't deserve anything. And I'm surprised he even let her borrow these territories, blah, blah, blah. Well, her daughter called up other character witnesses that said that the Spaniards owed Malinche a lot. She was an honorable woman and nothing would have happened without her. This early in the game, we already have kind of newborn dualities along how Malinche would be perceived. Now, despite the overall outcome of the case, Maria lost uh, 20 years later, the thing that stands out to me the most about the the years-long case is while Malinche was in living memory, you know, her defenders clear, you know, she was an absolutely key to Spanish progress in the new world that most indigenous people would only speak to Malinche. Like she had to be fetched if she wasn't available. They didn't want to talk to these subsidiary translators. They wanted La Malinche, despite an increasing availability of other translators. She was respected. Her word was accepted and the Spanish owed her a great debt of gratitude. In the decades immediately following her death, Spanish priests were sent in to document the lifestyles and history of New Mexico. As part of their research, they gathered thousands of pieces of art depicting pre-conquest life. After the arrival of the Spanish, Malinche is everywhere, absolutely everywhere, often in the center of the picture, sometimes larger than the Spanish, always speaking, often pointing, dressed in high-status garments, shown directing operations, regarded with respect. You know, the T-Z-I-N suffix on her name. Um, She was viewed as an authority figure, not a slave, not a traitor. The Spanish, even while she was alive, even when she was walking around with Cortez, downplayed her importance. They would call her, quote, a slave translator Mm. or a local woman to, you know, the king. They didn't want her to be important. They wanted to be the heroes. Right. Cortez downplayed her role in his success pointing to perhaps he had God on his side or the Spanish had right on their side. And that's why they succeeded. Right. None of this other stuff was important. No. As for Martem, although Hernan Cortez did acknowledge him as his son and had him educated in Spain, Cortez had remarried and had children and had another son who he also named Martin. Shades of Van Gogh. I'm telling you what. I and that Martin is the, considered the heir. As for Malinche's Martin, he kind of got tangled up a little bit later in life in a suspected rebellion in Spain. It was his brother's fault and his right. brother pieced out and he took the blame. Not just him. There was two other guys that were beheaded because of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Instead of being beheaded, he was exiled for a while then he was exonerated and then returned to Spain and quietly lived out the rest of his days. As for Hernan Cortez, uh, his popularity spiraled as information about what he had done in Mexico got out. And eventually, he died in poverty in Spain. And as you said, 
his body was reburied seven times because nobody wanted it. His name definitely rises to the top in the pantheon of sheer brutality. So again, with like the 90th disclaimer, we are not on the side of Cortez or his aims necessarily. Um, certainly, it's very complicated. And and so is the history of Malinche within Mexican culture. Over the course of the next few centuries, Spanish influence, both religious and political, increased. So when you are looking back on Malinche, then do we celebrate the light of progress having, quote, found us? Or do we, as Mexicans, grieve the loss of intricately balanced indigenous cultures that used to exist here and no longer do? The problem is that those who were descended from the conquistadors wanted to paint themselves and their ancestors as good guys, and perhaps the new Spanish and the existing Spanish and Spain as interlopers. And so even within themselves, they have a complicated history to try to balance. 295 years after Malinche's death, Mexico achieved independence from Spain on September 27th, 1821. So the complicated relationship was mostly severed, but there was so much Spanish now within the culture of Mexico that I don't, it's, I mean, it's impossible to separate it. Why would you want to? It's a lot of people's heritage. So either she was a traitor who had opened the door to their conquest, she was the physical mother of modern Mexico, the blending of two cultures. Or, as some would say, a mother that you chose to go no contact with, a mother that the son, who is Mexico, can never forgive. Hmm. She began to be associated with Eve, that famous betrayal of mankind, and the person that tempted the innocent Adam with the apple. I'm sorry, I'm, I can't even hold myself in. Adam ate the apple! Uh-huh, I'm just saying... I don't know why Eve gets the blame for that. Well, you know, lady person. Mm -hmm. There was a resentment culturally against everything Spanish or even European, which I can kind of understand as Europe, as we have talked about before, imposed an emperor on them. Right. So Emperor Maximilian was in play only 20 years after they had achieved independence from Spain. We've got another European power trying to insert themselves. So. I can see why this is crystallizing. And so ascribing different motivations to Malinche has been going on this whole time. Was it romantic love for her oppressor? That was her excuse. Now, I will tell you, they did the same thing to Pocahontas. You've all seen the Disney movie. Pocahontas was in love, and that's why she acted this way. I, I'm just here to tell you, they tried that on Malinche, too. I, yeah, that's the thing that just every time I saw it, it just kind of broke my heart is that she was listed as interpreter and lover to him. The job that she did and a romantic attachment always seems to be connected, even though, you know, it was a very long time before she had Martin. So, you know, after she had done all the important work. Well, I often think that sometimes Romantic love is used as a way to almost um, kind of destroy the capability of the person, you know, that they're right. talking, the woman that they're talking yeah. about. No, like, oh, she was just blinded by love. Mm -hmm. She has no agency. It was just Cupid's arrow. 
got a hold of her. Um, and you know, she's not responsible for her own actions. I saw a painting. Now this was, this was a painting done a lot later, I think toward this concept of romantic love, but it is really something that was out there. A painter called Jesus Helguera has painted Cortez and Malinche sitting on a horse. And it is a very romantic, glorious, lush painting. Sounds like the cover of a romance novel. It looks like the cover of a romance novel. You're Mm -hmm. right. Well, there was a movement in the early 20th century that all things indigenous are good. And we are going to go back to our roots to define ourselves and perhaps give Malinche a little grace. She had to do what she had to do to survive. She was caught in a dilemma that was not of her own making. Notable artists that actually subscribed to sort of this philosophy we've talked about before. That would be Frida Kahlo and her husband, Diego Rivera, the muralist. In 1929, he began this massive mural at the Palacio Nacional, the National Palace in Mexico City. It is monstrous. We'll link you up to a video that just shows the span of this mural. It is depicting the history of Mexico, whether he did it so that people who didn't know how to read can learn the history or just to honor the history. That's a debate for the art historians, but it is just massive. And of course, Malinche is present in that mural. Frida Kahlo herself deeply identified with Malinche and her dual nature. I read that Frida Kahlo's famous painting, The Two Fridas, Mm -hmm. are um, exploring the two halves of Frida Kahlo's own background. You know, her father was German and her mother was indigenous. So she had the same duality that Malinche had. And she, like some people identify with Jane Austen, perhaps um, began to deeply identify with with the, the problems and the history of Malinche. So, and I think Diego Rivera certainly knew that as he painted Malinche as a powerful figure. Yeah. Now, we should remember that Malinche, real Malinche, actual human Malinche, died before she was 30. So her actual presence has left this large of an impression, but she never saw the results of Cortez's actions. You know what I mean? Like the ultimate turmoil or whatever. Right. Um, she had no way of knowing all of this was going to happen or that all of this agita would come from the mixing of the cultures. No, you know, this whole story, it reminds me of, okay. You see that black and white picture of a very young Gilded Age woman with a big hat on in a profile. And then you kind of like squint and suddenly she becomes an old woman and her shoulder is suddenly her nose. And you can see as clear as day that this is a picture of an old woman. This whole story kept reminding me of that. It's just how you see it depends on where you're coming from and your personal bias. Right. The angle that you're viewing it from. Yep. Yep. The overwhelming feeling still seems to be, for those that haven't dug fully into it, Malinche is a symbol of betrayal of a, quote, bad woman who overstepped the boundaries of home. And then look what you get. You know, she has also been contrasted with the Virgin Mary, Our Lady of Guadalupe, who is, quote, the good side, and Malinche would be the bad side. Another mythology that she has been entangled with, she has also been associated with La Lorana, who is a ghost that wanders and shrieks, a ghost mother who killed her own children and now 
is roaming the earth looking for them and lamenting their loss. So they are saying that La Lorana may well be Malinche wandering the world, lamenting the loss of her culture. In that vein, in the later feminist movement, the feminists themselves were called Malinchistas. It was a bad term for a woman who had turned against the traditional role of womanhood. The word that spans even more people is malinchismo, and that would be anybody who prefers foreign values or customs over their own heritage. Again, a very slanderous word. And that's, I think, how come we got this suggestion. We were traveling on the Eurostar in the company of two Mexican people and asked them who we should cover. And they both looked at each other and looked straight at us and said, La Malinche. And then it was so funny because you and I kind of looked at each other and had a whole conversation once they said who she was and that she was very controversial. You and I just had like one of those instantaneous looking conversation. And when we got off the train, we're both like, you know, we should cover La Malinche. Yeah, (laughs) that was funny. Yeah. So we must have, it must have been fate. As recently as the 1980s, there was erected a statue of Cortez, of Malinche, and Martin that was protested so heavily by the populace that it had to be removed from public view and placed into an obscure location in Mexico City. And now it's time for media. And as usual, we will start with books. Now, before we get to the biographies, I just want to give a shout out to the most useful book that I think we have ever seen in our whole lives. Jason Porras's Rejected Princesses, <laughs> of which Malinche uh, is near the end, but um, but she appears. It's a pretty cool picture of her. She looks very mean, though. Yeah. <laughs> that is such a good book. Or two, There's two books, right? Well, this one's the, the Rejected Princesses. The brown one is the one that right. I have in front of me that, with Malinche. Yeah, that's the first one. As to biographies? The purest biography that I read was Malinson's Choices. An Indian Woman in the Conquest of Mexico by Camilla Townsend. It's fairly recent, 2006, but it's a very straightforward, traditional biography, very linear. It was the best one I could find that was in English. I don't even know if the Spanish ones that I accidentally borrowed, if they were good or not. So that's that was the primary one that I used. Camilla Townsend is also the author of a book called Pocahontas and the Powhatan Dilemma. I would say that the stories of Pocahontas and Malinche are parallelograms, if not parallel. Yeah. You know what I mean? And other people agree with me because one of the other books that I really found amazing was Malinche, Pocahontas, and Sacagawea, Indian Women as Cultural Intermediaries and National Symbols by Rebecca Yeager. The book that I had that was the best read was called Malinche's Conquest by Anna Lanyon. It's part biography of Malinche and part memoir of Anna in Mexico searching out evidence of Malinche and try to find the true story. I thought it was such a good look at what biographers go through. Right, right. I like it. It's it's a travelogue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really yeah. like it. As to children's books, this one, La Malinche, The Princess Who Helped Cortez Conquer the Aztec Empire by Francisca Serrano. I thought that one was really detailed for a kid's book. Yeah. If you want to learn more about the Cortez side or the Montezuma slash Moctezuma side of things, there is a book called Conquest, Montezuma, Cortez, and the Fall of Old Mexico by Hugh Thomas. 
And the one that I read for that information is called Conquistador, Hernan Cortez, King Montezuma, and the Last Stand of the Aztecs by Buddy Levy. And one other book that I just found super helpful was called Seven Myths of the Spanish Conquest by Matthew Ristall. It had far side cartoons as illustrations, which makes it sound like it's a very light book, and it's but it's not. If you would like to know what Hernan Cortez was telling his boss back in Spain, there is a translated and collected book called Hernan Cortez Letters from Mexico, translated by Anthony Pagden. Um, and I thought that was interesting that the call out on the front, what do you call that? The blurb says one of the most fascinating Machiavellian documents to come out of the Renaissance. Whoa. So there's some dark stuff going to happen. And there is, I had a hard time finding this. There was a documentarian named Bernal Diaz that fully, I mean, decades after Malinche died, he wrote a book called Historia Verdadera de la Conquista de la Nueva, Nueva España. And he actually has more of a humanistic, realistic view of Malinche's involvement. Um, he has almost nothing but compliments for her and her bravery, her appearance, you know, you can't get away from that. And um, just her involvement in the conquest. And if you can get a copy, if you speak Spanish, I think you're going to have a good time. I could not find a good translation, but it was referred to quite a bit in all the books that we just mentioned. And so it might be worth going to find yourself the original. If you are interested in finding out the details of the Spanish conquest of Mexico from a conversational podcast like this one, only with guy voices, The Rest is History has an eight-part series on Cortez and the Aztecs, The Fall of the Aztecs. There's a whole episode on Malinche. She pops up here and there along the way um, in other episodes. They're about an hour long. And again, it's very conversational. Both of these gentlemen like us have done the research. It's very similar, I thought, to our approach to history podcasting. So I really enjoyed that. I'll provide you some links to different art museums that have gathered together significant works depicting or referring to Malinche and have mounted exhibitions. Frida Kahlo, not only Frida Kahlo, the two Fridas, but Frida Kahlo has directly a piece called La Malinche in which she is hiding behind a Malinche mask that she's holding in her hand. So it's pretty great to be able to flip through and see all those works sort of in the context of having heard the story and how um, different artists um, have interpreted her. And of course, if you're in Mexico City, go see that mural, Diego Rivera's mural. And I also, how about this for a rabbit hole, found myself trying to hold truths in my head at the same time that were equally true. And so I looked up the word for it and it's called cognitive dissonance. And it is the uncomfortable feeling when you are trying to reconcile two things you know to be true, but cancel each other out. So I have an article, yeah, that will help you deal with that. Yeah, (laughs) very good. And that's all I have. And in closing, Malinche has a very complicated legacy. Is she the savior of Mexico from the cruelty of the Aztecs? Is she a betrayal of Mexico by introducing the cruelty of the Spanish? Is she the mother of a nation? Is she the symbol of overcoming oppression or a symbol of the oppression itself? Did she facilitate the creation of modern Mexico? 
or prevent it from blossoming for three centuries? How much agency did she have? How much influence the direction of the conquest itself? There's a lot to unpack. And scholars who spend their whole lives analyzing her life have come to vastly different conclusions, as has society as a whole. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you liked what you heard today, please tell a few friends or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcatcher. Two things. It looks like our summer 2024 field trip to Vienna is almost half sold out. So it's time to go to lightmindstravel.com and check on the itinerary before too much longer and see what it's all about. That's like, L-I-K-E, minds, M-I-N-D-S, travel.com. This was a happy accident. But today, the day of release, December 12th, is the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe, in which people all over Mexico and Mexican-Americans in the United States are preparing for a grand festival, including flowers, prayer, food, and family, and contemplation, and best wishes for your celebrations today. Enjoy the music. Speaking of music... The song at the end is called End of the Story by The Spoons, and I chose it because I think this is, I imagine it's Cortez talking to Malinche, especially the part where he says, And now we can pretend I never saw you shine the way you did when I let you in. See you next time. Yeah,